Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. Good morning, and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. This is Rachel Marshall and Bruce Weiner, your co-hosts. And today we are excited to dive into what could be a very simple topic, and it's a very fundamental and basic concept, but it's also something that is needed and is top of mind for us right now as we're helping people to truly take control of their financial life. And so, Bruce, I'm really excited to talk with you today about personal finance for beginners. And I think that in many ways, we all are beginners because there's so many times that we need to come back to the basics and come back to the fundamentals, no matter how far advanced we are in life. And remembering the reason why we do things and remembering the fundamentals is absolutely critical. So before I kick us into this conversation, Bruce, I just would like to hear your perspective and just your your thoughts as we kick off this conversation today. Yeah, I'd say this is more than just fundamentals for beginners. I know that the uh, clients of mine that have millions of dollars, we talk about this on a on a um, at least a quarterly basis. It's like, okay, now what are our goals and objectives, and and why do we need to stick to the basics? And it's it's funny. I think the people that have been um, most successful, whatever your definition of success is. Uh, our definition generally is cash flow. Um, they have tried to stick to just basics of money creation in their lives. And so uh, obviously people that don't have a good um, idea of how to go about this will benefit. But just like we talked about a couple of podcasts ago, uh, it's always good to go back to the fundamentals, even if you have millions of dollars, because those millions of dollars can change in an instant if you you don't stick to the fundamentals. And and we've all heard those stories, Rachel, mm-hmm. of people who have had millions of dollars and then lost millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And then they and then they and then they grow millions of dollars again. So the basis are for everybody. Ah, uh, very, very good. So let's go ahead and jump in. And you know, we were getting ready to do a back to basics series anyways. And then we got this amazing question that I think encapsulated what everyone needs to remember, what all of us need to remember as the fundamentals and basics. So I want to read the question. We're going to leave it anonymous, um, but this is from one of our listeners. And the question was, what is the foundation or the starting point of wealth building? What are the core things I would want in place to start building wealth? And I love that question because they didn't say, what stock should I invest in? They didn't say, should I pay off my mortgage? How quickly should I pay off my mortgage? They didn't say specifically, what, what life insurance should I get? What, how much should I fund life insurance with? They didn't say, what's my asset allocation or my risk allocation? They said, what are the fundamentals for building wealth? And I love the heart of this question. So if you are also wondering the same thing, or no matter where you are in your wealth creation journey, if you're saying, what are the fundamentals? What do I need to be remembering that is at the core of the reason why I'm putting all of these things in place in my financial life? 
This is a great conversation to come back to over and over again. So you might be saying, I have savings. I want to do something with those savings. You might be wondering, what are the best financial decisions I could be making? And how do I evaluate those decisions? How do I know that they're the right decisions for me? I almost, I like to equate this to taking your car to the dealership or getting your HVAC serviced. I personally do not know anything about what happens under the hood of a car, nor do I understand barely anything about what happens in my HVAC system. And I can have somebody come into my house or tell me at the dealership, you need to replace this timing belt. You need to replace these brakes. You need to, uh, you need to change something with your tires or have them balanced. Now, how do I know that they're telling me the truth? How do I know I can trust and depend on that? And how do I know that it's the right thing for me to do with my car or with my HVAC unit? And so when I hear these things, sometimes I wonder, well, are they just trying to do what benefits them? Are they just telling me something that I don't actually need to put money into? Or is this something that I really do need to think about preventatively so that I am in a position of not running my car into the ground or not having uh, the 90 degree day that happens you know, earlier than I'd like here in the state of Virginia to have my house running also at 90 degrees. So I want to be in a position of thinking ahead, but sometimes in the state of finance, you may just not know what you need. And so if you're asking those questions, how do I think about what I need so that the recommendations I'm getting, I'm sure are lining up with my true best interest today and in the future? So that's what we're going to be talking about today. You might be saying, is it time to talk to a financial advisor? Is it time to find a different financial advisor? And how do you figure out if the recommendations and the suggestions that you're getting are really matching up with your true goals? I think also in finance, it can be so easy to be distracted by so many things that are not the important details. It's so easy for you to... Somebody had said let the tax tail wag the dog, meaning I can make decisions just for what's best for my taxes. Well, that's not the only thing to think about. It surely is a thing, but if you're only making decisions on how it best benefits you in the tax realm, you might miss other aspects. If you're only thinking about how do I pay off all my debt as quickly as possible, you're chasing the wrong thing. It might be the best decision for you to pay off all your loans and liabilities in a certain way. However, what about the rest of your financial life? Is that truly the best thing for you to do? Maybe you're saving for your kids' college or for their future weddings. Maybe you're saving for your retirement. But if you only focus on one thing or one aspect, you can get almost uh, sidelined and you can, you can get off on the wrong focus because it may not be the best thing holistically and comprehensively for you. So Today, we're going to talk about solid money habits and things that you really need to think about to have in place to truly have the fundamentals for building wealth. Now, I would like to say we're going to break this into the 10 things that you want to have in place to have really uh, to really feel good about your personal finances and make sure you're headed in the right direction. We'll see if we cover 10 today or not. We might have to adjust the title uh, and the introduction to this podcast but these are going to be the fundamentals that you should be thinking about so that you're not sidelined, so that you're not focused on the wrong thing or making a big deal about something that should be a small deal in your financial life. So Bruce, I think we should really start by saying, if I'm going to build wealth, what is wealth? I mean, I think that needs to be at the forefront of the conversation because you can do a whole lot of things that might be good for your financial life, but truly what is wealth? What would you say to that? 
Um, um, I'm laughing because uh, about a year ago, we had a client who um, signed up and for a meeting with me. And about 10 minutes into the meeting, the client said, I want to know what your net worth is because I'm not wor working with anybody who doesn't have a greater net worth than I do. And I said to him, um, what's your definition of net worth? And he goes, well, the, you know, the classic one where your assets versus your liabilities, and then that's your net worth. So I want to know what your net worth is. And I said, well, that's just a big pile of money then, right? And so a lot of people the, um, see that as being the most important thing. And I said to him, you know, my wife and I decided a long time ago that we weren't going to build a big pile of money. Now, you always have to have, you know, some emergency funds and, and money for the future and so on and so forth. But what we decided was cash flow was the most important thing. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I would say is you really have to decide what your definition of wealth is for you. You know, some people, I, I got off the phone with somebody, somebody yesterday that is a very nervous client. So for them, wealth is having enough money so that they, in a, in a pile, so that they can sleep at night. Mm -hmm. um, I, we have other clients that they have, a, they have a business that's kicking off cash flow. And, and they know that if something happens to that business, which a lot of people's businesses did, did get disrupted during COVID, that they may not have a business anymore. And, but that's their definition of wealth, that they have their business kicking off cash flow. And it's worth so much today. If you don't know about how a business valuation works, every business sector has a business valuation and and the worth of your business is a multiplier of that particular sector of business. So if you have a three times multiplier, uh, whatever your revenue is, the valuation would be three times of what your revenue is on the open market in general. You, some businesses are only one times. Some businesses, unbelievably lately, are 10 times the value of that. So that is wealth to some people. So it, it comes down to your definition of wealth, but let's just talk about it in three certain uh, things, and then we'll establish that you can then help yourself determine what your definition of wealth. Number one is uh, an, the classic definition of net worth. So that's your assets minus your liabilities gives you your, your balance sheet or your net worth. That's what a lot of people use. The second one is I can take my uh, cash flow and I could divide it by um, a particular percentage that would show you what your actuarial net worth is. So example, Rachel, I'll, I'll do it live for us here on the show. Let's say somebody has $400,000 of cash flow. And what would you have to divide that by? Well, let's just say 4%. And that, that means you actually have an equivalent of $10 million of net worth. Now, let me, let me restate that. Let's go the other way. If you had $10 million and you could, and you could put it someplace to get 4% off of it, that would give you $400,000 of cash flow. 
So then a, a person could argue if they have a business and it's producing $400,000, that would mean that they have a net worth of $10 million because they would have to, they would have to amass a pile of $10 million somewhere, put it somewhere to make 4% and then live off of 400,000. Okay. So I love that you that, work that backwards because mm-hmm. I don't think most people think about it that way. And if you have an asset producing cash flow, it's the same as having a pile of cash that has exactly right. a percentage that you're taking off as cash flow. Great way to think about that. Yeah. And then the final thing is what people consider wealth. And, and um, this is what the hippie generation and some of the uh, more millennial generation are now saying to, my, to themselves is, hey, wealth to me is my time. So I'd rather work some jobs, you know, some people call them gig jobs where they can decide when they're working and whether they're Uber or uh, blogging or something like that and have control of my time, even if I'm only making X amount of thousands of dollars a year, but I have time to do what I want every week, every month, every year. And so that's, that would be time wealth. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's, just, let's just quickly review. So we have net worth wealth, traditional net worth wealth, which would be assets minus liabilities equals net worth. We have cash flow wealth, which is just simply how much you're producing cash flow wise. And then finally, uh, time wealth, which simply means you control your time and you're happy about the amount of cash that you're producing uh, that, it, that actually fits into the amount of time that you would like. And that doesn't mean that you can't have two out of the three or three out of the three also, depending on how you set your life up. You know, Bruce, I love that lead in because we have to realize what definition of wealth and whose definition of wealth are we taking on in order to build wealth? Because the way that you're going to build wealth is going to be different depending on what you think of as wealth for you. I'm going to actually throw in a fourth concept of how I like to think about wealth. And this is borrowed from um, the team at um, Wise Council Research, I think is how it is said, but this is from the book's Complete Family Wealth. And they talk about wealth being human flourishing. Now that might be a very um, theoretical or maybe um, philosophical definition, but let me break it down really, real briefly. If I and my family are flourishing in every area of our life. That is wealth. What they're basically saying is we think of wealth as just money in our American way of thinking. We think about money is wealth, dollars are wealth, but really they're saying, well, you can have all the money in the world, but if you're not healthy, if you're not happy, if you're not well-connected, if you don't have thriving relationships, you're not really going to feel good about anything, which means you're not truly wealthy. And so what they expand the definition to include is five forms of capital. And really, this is your human capital, your intellectual capital, your spiritual capital, your social capital, and your financial capital. And the reason to think about wealth in that way is that I want my money to support flourishing 
in every area of my life and my family's life, meaning that I want monetary resources to be able to provide opportunity and access to the best relationships and the best mentoring relationships for myself and for my children. I want to be able to provide them the intellectual stimulation with the right education and access to knowledge and wisdom so that they can expand their capabilities to their their greatest ability. And I want to make sure that they're flourishing spiritually, not just monetarily. Now, today, we're certainly going to focus in on the financial component of building wealth. But I think the definition of wealth as human flourishing really, for me, helps me think about why am I even asking the money question to begin with? And I think at the core of all of our human experience, we all want our money to do something powerful in our lives and our family's life. And if we remember that why, it's much easier to make financial decisions. And here's why. Here's how this comes into actuality. Well, if I know that I want my children and my spouse to be taken care of if something happened to me, or if my income stream dried up, or I died, or I became disabled and was no longer able to work, that changes the the way that I handle my financial life today so that they can have this continued experience of the financial support to do the things that we've dreamed of together. If I think about, I want my children to have access to the greatest education, that may be a college degree. It may be even advanced college degree at a prestigious college. It may not be though. It might be access to masterminds and communities of people who are building businesses and who are helping other people build businesses. So I may be thinking about, I want to set aside money for college, but it might not just be college. It might be for me in my own life with myself and my husband, we're saying we want money available for education and knowledge, not necessarily just college, which then changes my definition of what I want to do with my money. I don't just want a college plan and set dollars aside for college planning because that may not be the best method of education for my children to develop themselves and their flourishing. So if I think about how I want my money to impact the flourishing of my family, then I can think bigger than just what most people would say. Make sure you can pay off your house. Make sure you um, can set aside money for college. Make sure you're planning for retirement. Make sure that your spouse is taken care of. Make sure you have income in your later non-working years. But I think the definition should be much broader than that to say, how can I prepare my money to help me and my family thrive as long as possible into the future. And that for me changes the conversation about what I want to do with my money. So Bruce, we can talk about financial planning. Um, Let's, let's do that for just a moment, because I think what happens is somebody says, well, I either am doing really well on my own and I have been setting money aside. I'm saving and now I'm in a position of saying, well, I have a year's worth of savings or I have, you know, I have cash set aside And now I'm realizing I like that, but I think there's probably something more for me to do than just save money. So then they might say, well, now I need to talk to a financial advisor. I probably need a plan. And then that plan, I would like us to talk about the difference between what typical financial planning is and what traditional financial planning looks like and what the end outcomes or the goals are. But that question then becomes, I'm doing a lot of the right things. I feel pretty good about the decisions I've made up to this point, but now I want somebody to help me see what I can't see for making the best financial decisions long-term. So Bruce, can you talk about what is financial planning in general? 
before we go there, financial planning has only been around for about 40 years. And even then, it's only been, and that's when it kind of first started in the early 80s. And the reason it first started in the early 80s, before that, uh, everybody, well, I shouldn't say everybody, but uh, corporate pensions were very prevalent in the United States. <clears throat> so you really didn't have to think about financial planning for the long term because you worked for a corporation or a, or a private business and they had a pension for you at the end. So you'd work for them for 30 years and then you'd ride off into the sunset with you know, a, a retirement watch and a pension and uh, Social Security would supplement that. Uh, the stock market, it wasn't even that great because um, people didn't think about it because they didn't have to. And, and, you know, some people would invest in stock market and they'd have a stock broker and they would facilitate the, the purchasing of that stock. But financial planning didn't come about until the early 80s. And we had the father of the 401k on the podcast before Ted Benna. And Ted started that as a supplement to highly compensated people. He never meant it to be um, for the masses because he, he did not want to replace pensions, which, but unfortunately, that's what happened. And that happened in 1979. And so people started, as that happened, then pensions started going away. So when pensions started going away, they were, they were actually couched as a good thing for the individual because now the individual could go to, from job to job to job um, because before, if you, if you went from a job to another job, you would have to get revested in their pension. Mm -hmm. And so people were, now they were saying, well, look, now you can just take your 401k to the new job. The, the, the problem with that was that, um, it took the onus off the employer to provide the pension and it put the onus on you to provide the pension. Now that, that does mean you take more ownership. But it also means that you have to take more of the risk involved in the situation. So when, when people started seeing that, oh, now I'm taking more of the risk and I don't know anything about this, um, then they had to actually get people to help them plan. And so that was when the planning of uh, financial planning actually started in the, in the early 80s. Now, what that means, it can mean a lot of different things to people. You can have, you can have a financial planning where somebody just says, "Hey, can you look over my 401k allocation?" And an allocation is how are you diversified amongst your 401k mutual funds or stocks or bonds? Uh, that could be financial planning to one person. Another person's financial planning is to actually help a person go through their cash flow awareness and then decide what they should be spending money on. That could be another person's definition. But the traditional definition of financial planning in the industry is to actually look at the, uh, the present as far as how you're allocating dollars, the future as far as you're um, thinking about delaying gratification, and then having monies put aside for the future, and then... Um, you would also have protection for all your different insurances. And then another uh, aspect of this could also be um, 
a plan that for legacy, you know, how you're going to transfer that, which would include taxes, a tax plan on this. So you can do those individually, but the traditional way is how do I, how do I implement those all four aspects together along the way? I think what the difficulty comes in, where the difficulty comes in, is that most of that typical, again, the typical financial planning conversation that has been around since about the early 80s, factors in a lot of unknowns and guesses in order to come up with these projections. And so let me share what I mean by that. Normally, what you would do is put in some kind of a calculation based on your current income today and how much you're able to not spend, meaning how much are you saving or setting aside for the future. And I'm lumping those together because most people think they're saving when truly they're investing. We're going to break those down in a second. But they say, how much can you put aside for the future? And then that money that's put aside for the future, you're asked to apply a lot of assumptions to it. And here's the types of assumptions that each person has to make. What is, how long do you need income for? Well, none of us actually know. We can base that calculation on our life expectancy, but many people live much longer than their actual life expectancy. So you can say, well, I guess I want to have this income last until I'm age 84. And then what if you live to be 110? You're not sure exactly when that end point is. Another assumption that you're asked to make is what uh, tax rate are you going to pay on income? Well, we know today's tax rate and the income bracket or the tax bracket that you're in based on your income today. But we can see by looking back at history that tax rates have changed many times over the history of tax rates in America. Not only have the tax rates changed, but the tax thresholds, meaning that today you may pay X percentage at X income amount, and tomorrow that rate may change or increase, and you actually may be in a much higher tax bracket because it required only half of your income to be bumped into that final tax bracket. So those tax rates and tax thresholds have changed so many times throughout history that we can't say we know what the future of tax rates will be. Now, we can guess, do we think taxes are going down or going up? I will let you make that own determination, but most people we talk to say they pro- they think taxes are probably going to continue going up, looking at our national spending, looking at the dollars that are needed to handle that spending and the national debt. Another Assumption that you're asked to make is what rate of return can you get on money set aside? So, if today you're setting aside $20,000 per year, or let's even say $100,000 per year, what rate of return do you expect you're going to get on that money every year going forward as you put these dollars into some type of account for the future? Again, I'm not differentiating here between saving and investment. The reason I'm not differentiating is many times we think that historically, if there's been an average rate of return in the stock market and we're investing in stocks, we expect that that average rate of return can be applied to the future as a rate of return every year. And so we say, well, if we think the historical average is in the 6 to 7% range, that means, which is a fallacy of logic, but the we think that means I can apply 
six to seven percent rate of return to the dollars I'm setting aside every year going forward into the future until I plan to stop working. And then it's going to continue growing at that rate of return based on my risk allocation. Now, the challenge here is average rates of return do not equal real rates of return in the future. And none of us have a crystal ball to know exactly what rate of return you will get based on your asset allocation. Also, it doesn't account for the fact that sometimes a rate of return may actually go negative or you may lose money in some types of investments. Bruce, I'm covering a lot here, um, kind of at a general, um, from a general high level perspective. Is there anything you want to share that would help further clarify what I've shared up to this point? I thought you did a really good job um, explaining that. But the one, one of the concepts that people do not um, understand very well, which actually um, is it, it could be the most detrimental thing to a person's um, financial life when they retire is sequence of return risk. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> sequence of return risk simply means is when you retire, what is the next 10 to 15 years look like in the stock market. Let me see if I can break this down visually for a person. So let's say you you retire and you have a million dollars and you decide that I'm going to need to have uh, 5% off of that million dollars going forward. And um, so the first year I have 50,000, the idea that you're going to make 5% that year to make it a million fifty thousand, and then harvest that fifty thousand off of there, and that's what you were talking about, Rachel. Is is that average? So if if that happens every year, make five percent, harvest fifty thousand, make five percent, harvest fifty thousand, make five percent, harvest fifty thousand. Theoretically, that sounds like it would work out, right? Correct. But then let's say that somebody retires, like some people did in two thousand eight or some people did right before COVID hit, and um, all of a sudden their $1 million is now worth, let's just say a 20% loss. And you take 5% from that, well, now you only have $40,000. So now in order to take $50,000, we can do the math real quickly on that. So 50,000 of 800,000, is 6.25%. Doesn't seem like a lot, but an additional 1.25% eats into your principal and it's harder for it to recover because now if you only make 5% that year, the next year, you're still down Mm 1.25%. So early losses in retirement actually hurt a person going forward. It's called sequence of return risk because not only do you have to overcome a low stock market portfolio that year, you also have to overcome whatever you're harvesting off in retirement. It's mm-hmm. one of the greatest risks that people have for retirement that nobody talks about. So now that the stock market is actually at a higher valuation than, than has historically been for uh, the, the price to earnings ratio, a lot of people are nervous about retiring. And we have a lot of baby boomers that are retiring. 
So you can do a couple of things. And this is what happened in 2008. People actually just said, I can't retire. I have to continue to work because I have to wait for my stock portfolio to come back. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is you can take less off of your money. So if you were planning on taking 50000 but you only want to take 5% off because you believe it's going to recover by 5% this year, then now you only take 40000 So this is kind of the planning that you have to do is what are you going to do um, if those kind of things happen? And that's what typical financial, financial planning does. Atypical financial planning is, is like our friend, Dr. Wade Fowl, who we had on, says you can actually do things to, um, to actually take care of many different economic situations. And we won't get into that one, but people can reference that particular podcast if they're, if they're looking for that. So that would be the only thing, Rachel, I, I'd like to add to that is the sequence of return risk is probably the biggest risk that people do not talk about. They talk about market risk. They talk about inflation risk. They talk about longevity risk. They talk about this, but very few people talk about sequence of return risk. Bruce, I love that you brought that in because it's a huge challenge. And uh, you also caught that I did not mention inflation risk. So I just want to highlight that for a second as well, because the challenge with inflation risk is that there's a published inflation percent. But when we think about even that published number of generally 3% per year, you have to walk that out into the future as well and realize that in two years time, that's 6% inflation. And in three years time, I believe that's 9% inflation. And what happens is that as inflation is applied, my dollars today become worth less and less, meaning their purchasing power is less, which means that if I expected to be taking $50,000 out of my accounts in 20 years, and I expect that 50000 to feel like what feels like $50,000 today, it's not going to feel like the same amount of money. And you will need more and more dollars in the future if inflation continues to creep up or if inflation is higher than zero in any year, you will need more dollars in the future to provide the same purchasing power that you have today, which means I'm going to need a lot more money per year in the future than I think I'll need. So all of these factors go into the typical conversation. You have to assume a rate of inflation. You have to assume a rate of return. You have to assume how long you're going to be needing this income from your financial plan. You also are going to need to assume what order those sequence of returns will be in, and hopefully they'll always be favorable for you, but we know that that's not the case. We also have to assume the tax rate. And the challenge with this is that if I ask any person to base a plan that will work on all of these unknowns, how can you have a stable plan? How can you have a plan that you can count on that's the best thing possible for you if it's based on all of these variables that you're having to guess and none of us can read the future. So what I would like to propose instead of saying, what money can we set aside today? How can we apply all these unknown variables to get to a certain dollar amount that is an accumulation or a pile of cash that I can then 
live off the interest by taking out a portion of that account and hopefully not drain my pile down to zero before I die and still hopefully to have something to leave to my children. Instead of that conversation, what if we left that aside and we just said, what do you have to work with today? And how do you do as much as possible with that money? End of story. How do I optimize my financial situation to do the most with the dollars that I'm setting aside so that I can handle whatever unknowns are ahead of me in the future? That feels like a different question to me. It doesn't necessarily have an endpoint. It does have a goal to expand and multiply and do the most with the dollars that we have. And if we overlay this conversation onto the actual reality of our human existence, I think that's really all that we have. We have the ability to make the best decisions possible today, but none of us can actually know exactly where we're going to land in the future. And so I think the conversation about financial planning, where we set the end goal and as in an end dollar amount that we want to get to, that might be a completely flawed way of thinking about our finances. And if instead we try to build in as much control, as much certainty, and as much opportunity as possible so that we can handle the widest range of circumstances, I think everyone would be in a much better position. So in order to do that, I would like to dig into how do you know that you're optimizing your financial life? And this is really the way that we tend to do most of our thinking about a financial future or creating what we call time and money freedom or financial freedom. And so, Bruce, let's kind of dig into the the things that somebody would need to have in place to make sure that whatever your starting point is today, that you're doing the most possible with your money. Um, And what I would like to say here is we have a nine-step process that leads you through this. And I will just, I'm going to highlight this briefly, and we might be able to find out a way to stick this into the video later so that you can see this as well. But the first level at the bottom is to keep as much of the cash that you make as possible. Now, that doesn't mean never spending money and scrimping and saving and just being able to be, uh, having to be a miser in your life. But what it does mean is being aware of your money mindset and being aware of your cash flow and then plugging as many of the financial leaks as possible in the way that you spend your dollars so that you can keep as much of your money that you make as possible. Then once you've kept that money, then it's thinking about how do I protect this money in that next level up. So we started with keeping, now we're protecting. And Bruce, you mentioned this at the beginning, but this is thinking about how do I preserve the wealth that I've built? How do I make sure that nothing can come in and steal that wealth from me? How do I make sure I have all of my insurances in place? This is my home insurance, my auto insurance, my umbrella coverage. This is disability and health insurance. This is having life insurance in place. This is your estate plan and making sure you have solid financial reserves or savings. Now, after I've protected my wealth, then I want to use that wealth as the third level, the the top tier of this three-step process. And and this covers the last three of the nine steps. This is when I am thinking about how do I do the most with my dollars? How do I invest in what I know and control? How do I create a legacy with my cash and with my money? And then how do I really build true time and money freedom? How do I not just get to a specific dollar amount of $500,000 or 1 million or 2 million in my account as that 
pile of cash? How instead do I truly create time and money freedom? So that's a, a big picture concept of the, the way that we see building and optimizing your financial life to do the most with your money. But Bruce, let's kind of walk this through um, in terms of practically, what does that look like in someone's life? How can we say, here's maybe the steps that you could take to make sure that you're working in that direction with this caveat of saying, this is not advice. This is more of a fundamental to have in place in your financial life to be thinking about how to optimize. Yeah, the first thing is just consistent monthly savings. And I don't know what mentor or what person once told me this, is, but all consistent monthly savings is, is delaying gratification. So, you know, you, you put aside money on a consistent basis um, whenever you get it, whether you're paid, you know, once a month, twice a month, three times every week, or whether you're a 1099 employee that only get, gets paid erratically. You just consistently put money away. And one of the best ways to do this is, is the way that uh, uh, fitness clubs have figured it out is to do a, a subscription service to yourself and just say, I'm going to transfer money from one account to another account automatically. If you're a W-2 employee and they allow this, most people allow this now, you can actually have your direct deposit go into multiple accounts. So if you you could tell them, hey, I want you know 85% to go into this checking account, which is your put and take checking account, and I have 15% going to this particular account, and that's your savings account. So that that consistent uh, monthly savings would be the foundation, the first thing you should do. You know, I love that idea. And we have implemented this in my own personal life. And what we looked at is we said, we're not just going to save if there's cash left over, because the reality is who does that? Who ends up with money left over? If you plan to spend your money first, there will always be because of the laws of nature, Parkinson's law being of uh, top prime importance here. If you have the dollars available to spend, you're going to spend them. So you need to instead take them off of the plate before you even have the ability to spend. And so while in our account, I don't know if we have not figured out a way to do exactly what you talked about, the distribution of percentages, but once the money goes into our main checking account, we then have a sweep. We have set a certain dollar amount that automatically sweeps the money from our checking account over into a savings account. We're going to talk about the purpose of that savings account in a second, but that is another way that you can operationalize that or go into your banking account online and you can set up an automatic transfer that happens on a certain date every month or the end of a month, but it's automatic. So you don't even have the ability to spend that money in the first place. Um, I, I'm also going to come back to, I think I mentioned this in the last podcast, we talked about fundamentals, but George S. Clayson wrote The Richest Man in Babylon. He talked about setting your purse to fattening. The reason I share this is because nobody talks this way, so it's so memorable um, to set your purse to fattening. What in the world does that mean? He means every time you make $10, put one of the dollars in your purse, which fattens your purse, spend the other nine. But put that $1 in your purse, I think he was talking about gold coins, but put it in your purse before you spend the other nine. And the next time you make $10, put one in your purse before you spend the other nine. Your purse is going to fatten as a result of this consistent habit of paying yourself first before you spend. So that is the first thing. Number one, you want to have in place. 
Bruce, do you want to go with number two? Yeah. Um, well, one of the things that uh, if you just continue, this is another, it's, it's related to this, but if you continue to increase your earning potential, which most people do, mm -hmm. is that um, you can also just increase the amount of savings that you have at that particular time. So it's uh, so obviously if you go from making 200,000 a year to 250,000 a year and you're putting away 10%, then you're put, you're going from 20,000 to 25,000 a year. Mm -hmm. But but that's only that's 25 that's only five more thousand and you and your your earnings went up by 50,000. So then you should consider putting more of a percentage away at that time to capture yes. more of that growth. Now, you know, they, this could be misconstru misconstrued as, well, that's a negative way of thinking because that's a scarcity where I'm, I'm putting more away, but we're not saying put it away and never do anything. We're saying it's a, a you're building your opportunity fund up greater mm -hmm. uh, for down the road. So uh, as your as your ability to earn money increases, put more money away as a percentage. Yes. And there's multiple other ways that you can increase your savings percentage. But I would say, and again, I'm going to leave a range. There's not a number, there's not a specific target that is right for everyone. But I would say that generally you want to be saving 10 to 30% of your income or more. And I know I'm I'm hedging on both ends. And maybe right now, all you can put aside is 1% of your income. Start wherever you are. Don't hear this as all or nothing. It's not that. Start with something and putting that savings aside and continue to increase it. I guarantee if you start looking at your cash flow in using maybe mint.com or even just looking at it in your online banking on a regular basis, you'll start seeing things that maybe you're spending in a way that's not consistent with your values or on things that you don't want to be spending on. And this isn't always possible. Yes, we know that the price of gas is increasing. The price of food is increasing. And so you're going to have areas that you're spending more in, but there's possibly areas as well that you can spend less and get the same benefit or that maybe you're spending in a way that isn't really improving your life the way that you would like. So just be aware of your cash flow, and that's another way to continue to increase the amount or percentage of your savings. Now, there's a lot of overlap between these, these 10 steps that we're laying out here, but um, Bruce, I'm actually going to jump forward to something you just said with thinking of your cash as an opportunity fund. So the reason I'm going to jump there is because I think we all can have this idea from whatever source. Um, sometimes we've heard Dave Ramsey says, have a $1,000 emergency fund. Sometimes we think, well, I should just have a thousand in savings or 5,000. And then after that, I don't know what to do. Maybe I stop saving and then I start investing. I think of my financial flow as I'm saving money, but that's not just for a rainy day. It's not just for an emergency or unforeseen expense. I'm saving for emergencies and opportunities. So I think of the savings is always going every single amount of cash we receive. So every piece of income, every dollar flow into our bank account has a savings percentage attached to it that flows over into a savings account. Now that savings I think of as an emergency slash opportunity fund. The reason is that of course it's going to be used for things that are unforeseen expenses. In addition, I can think of anything beyond what I need for emergencies 
as an opportunity fund that is my cash reserves that's continuing to grow, that's providing me the ability to have capital to secure deals. This might be investing back in my business. This might be buying an additional business. This might be um, buying out a, a um, competitor or a partner in a business, or it could be buying cash flowing assets that might be real estate, or there's so many different things that you can do with cash when you have it. But if you don't have the cash available, you won't be able to make any of those decisions. So you'll begin to think differently as you have a growing pile of capital that can be used as an emergency and an opportunity fund. So think about the savings bucket, not just as a rainy day fund, but this is money for for emergencies and opportunities. Now, um, Bruce, I know I changed up the order. Let's talk about where should we store that emergency and opportunity fund? Can you talk about safety, liquidity, and growth? Yeah, safety, liquidity, and growth are the, the three tenets that you have to consider whenever you place your, wherever you place your money. So um, if you buy a, a single stock, you have to look at it from a safety viewpoint. Is it safe? No, we all know that. Is it liquid? Yes, because you can sell it on the open market tomorrow. Does it grow? Well, it depends on your time period. Um, it's short, medium, or long. Uh, but, but traditionally, a stock would have grown over at least a long period of time. Now, let's go to the other extreme, a savings account. Is it safe? Yes. Is it liquid? Yes. Does it grow right now? No. Some people would say you actually have some, some safety issues as, as far as the liquidity goes. Because um, if you look at what after the 2008 crisis, uh, there, is, there, are, there is language in place that says that banks are not going to do bailouts anymore. They're going to do bail-ins. And this actually happened in Greece a few years ago. Where you were the where they actually froze assets and they would only allow you to get certain monies out of the bank at a, a certain amount. So liquidity could also be in question. Think about your home. I think uh, I, we had a, a money advantage client yesterday. Or I'm sorry, a couple of days ago to actually talk about this. They had fifteen thousand extra dollars and they were deciding whether they were going to put it just pay down their mortgage. <clears throat> Is that safe? Traditionally, it's safe, although 2008, it wasn't safe. Is it liquid? Not unless you're paying down a home equity line of credit, and most people have traditional 30-year mortgage. If it's as a thir- traditional 30-year mortgage or 15 or 20, then it's not liquid because you have to ask permission to get your money back. Does it grow? Well, your money's going to grow in your, I'm sorry, the equity in your house is going to grow whether you have paid down the mortgage or not. So whenever you're doing all the this, you look at safety, liquidity, and growth. And then not only where you where you put the money, when you're when you're trying to figure out the liquidity is the next thing we wanted to talk about is of course you're always going to have the need for 15 minute money. Mm-hmm. And our definition of 15 minute money is can you drive to your bank in 15 minutes and get them and get money? Or do you have a fireproof safe in your house that you have some cash, which I would recommend mm-hmm. happening, that you have some cash that's available right now? 
for a variety of things, emergencies. It also could be a time of economic turmoil, or it could be simply, oh, I'm driving down the street and you know, there's an estate sale and you, and you see something right there and they, they're only taking cash. You're like, oh, I can just go back to my house and, and get that $300 that they want for this particular uh, bed that I want for my, my extra bedroom. Mm-hmm. So 15-minute money. Then the reserves, we, you know, we're going to recommend six to 12 months of reserves. And those reserves are your basic expenses that you have every month. Mm-hmm. So look at your, your fixed and variable expenses that you have. You can decide whether you want to include things that are more luxuries, like uh, going out to eat. Most people just include their basic living expenses that are fixed, such, such as mortgage, your car insurance, your, your uh, communication devices, so on and so forth, and then variables such as your utilities. Most people don't include, you know, vacations, so on and so forth. Or savings even. I mean, if you're saving 30% of your income, then looking at what you require to continue living, that wouldn't, would not include that. Correct. Um, So those are things um, that are all consistent with what we were trying to talk about, you know, things you do with your money. So. Bruce, as you you covered a few here, so you covered one that you want to think about the safety, liquidity, and growth of wherever you're storing these savings. And up to this point, we're still just talking about savings. We're not talking about investing. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about a distinction for a second. When I think about saving, I think about cash that is not going to drop in dollar amount. Now, we could get all caught up in right now. Well. Is a dollar still say, staying a dollar value because of inflation? That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is if I put $100,000 into a cash account in the bank right now, it's not going to, I'm not going to pull up my balance and have it be $50,000 tomorrow unless someone stole the money out or I took the money out. It's, it's not going to drop in dollar value. So that's savings. Savings is money that is safe in terms of it's not going to lose its value or its its dollar worth. Now, if I put money over into an investment where I expect the cash is going to grow, there is a potential for loss. And wherever there's a potential for the loss of dollar value, I would say that that is an investment. So it's extremely valuable to have a distinction in your own mind about is this savings or is this an investment? So we're talking about putting money into savings, thinking of those savings as an emergency opportunity fund, thinking about how do I have 15-minute money within that savings? How do I have access to, or how do I have six to 12 months worth of expenses still within my savings? And now I'm going to continue growing this emergency and opportunity fund. But say I've already got all of that 15 minute money and I've got my 12, I'm, I'm all the way up to 12 months worth of expenses. I could live for an entire year. If I lost my income, I could still sustain exactly our standard of living today. What then? So then we would say, keep saving. You're going to, you're going to say, Rachel, you sound like a broken record. Keep saving. This is a discipline. It's a habit. It is the fundamental, most basic piece of building wealth that most people try to move away from and get really fancy as soon as they have these things in place. Don't stop saving. Keep saving. Now we can think differently about where we're going to save that capital. Um, 
let's talk. So I'm going to say that that step seven is never stop saving. Now, Bruce, you talked about safety, liquidity, and growth earlier. I'm going to suggest at this point, if you are already filled up with your savings up to your um, six to 12 months worth of expenses, I would think about saving in a location that is going to still give you safety, liquidity, and growth. I'm going to suggest that you look at infinite banking, and it is a combined tool of using a strategy and a financial product, which is specially designed whole life insurance to store cash. It is like, it is not a savings account, but it is like a savings account. The reason is that it is safe where your dollars that are growing in terms of the cash value you can access will not drop in value. They will not go from 100,000 down to 50,000 unless you take that money out. It is continuing to be safe in that way. It's liquid because you can borrow against your cash value by taking a policy loan. That is only one way to access your capital. There's other ways as well, but this is the most beneficial way to access your capital. Now it's not 15 minute money. You can't call up the life insurance company and get cash in 15 minutes. That's why we recommend having cash in the bank or specifically in a safe in your home. What you want to do though, is have this way of thinking that I also am continuing to store cash in a place that's accessible to me. The life insurance company, I can write them a a letter or I can call them and I can request a policy loan and they are required to provide a policy loan on the basis that I'm a policy owner and I have this cash value available in my account. So it is liquid. It's just more so liquid within, Bruce, what is the official number that we say? Three to five days, five to seven business days. Yeah, but most of the companies want you to say five to seven business days. That's. But we have companies that can get it to you in 48 to 72 hours. And unfortunately, some of them are having more difficulty because of, of employment out, uh, difficulties. It's you know 10 to 12 business days. So, But officially, five to seven business days. But the point that you need to hear is that if you need to access cash, you absolutely can access cash. And that's in a relatively short period of time. And it's not a, if you qualify, it's not a, perhaps you might get it or you have to apply for this um, loan, this is a guaranteed policy owner benefit. Now, also, as we look at growth, it is also growing. The value of using specially designed whole life insurance is that it is growing at a higher rate than other comparable accounts for savings. And it is uninterrupted compound growth, which means even when I take a policy loan and borrow against it, my cash still continues to grow, meaning I'm not stopping the compounding and making it start over every time I remove cash or borrow against that cash. So some tremendous advantages that I'm also getting the protection component of the death benefit. And I'm also getting this ability to have the death benefit to pay for my legacy and to take care of that portion of my financial planning. Now, Bruce, I've covered that piece, but let's talk briefly. I know we're really at the top of the hour for our show, but once we have these pieces in place, and I would say that we've probably covered about eight at this point, eight steps, now we need to invest with knowledge and control because 
wherever you're storing cash, we don't just want to have savings and just say, well, all I do is save. I want to think about investing. Bruce, can you talk briefly about the investing goal of creating cash flow from assets? Yeah. Um, you know, I always, when I talk to people, most people actually look at this and they look at business owners and actually they envy business owners or they want to be a business owner. So we always tell people, maybe you don't have all the characteristics of a business owner, which um, probably the one that scares the people the most is the uncertainty mm-hmm. of business ownership. But you could always act like or invest like a business owner. So you can actually put money in, into different investments that would actually, instead of looking to produce appreciation, and that's what you do with in the stock market, you're, you're putting money into it and you're hoping that the stocks or the mutual funds or the bonds are going to appreciate in value. Or you can put your money into assets that are actually going to produce cash flow. So now let's think about this. If you're, if you have a pile of money in the stock market and you're hoping it's going to go up by six, seven, even 10%, and that's how you're going to then add it, add to your pile. Or you could put money into an investment that cash flows by six, seven, or even 10%. And then that's how you're adding to your pile. Now people would say, well, why? What's the difference between the two? Well, the difference between the two is really comes down to the the risk profile uh, that you would like to like to uh, have in your life. <clears throat> so, what I tell people is, you know, when you invest in the Coca Cola or UPS, um, Coca Cola and UPS cannot necessarily you cannot necessarily talk to the to the actual CEO of those particular places. Where when you when you go into a cash flowing investment, a lot of times, if not you, your financial advisor can actually talk to the partners or the sponsors of that particular investment, and they can see the vision, they can see the more of the due diligence, so on and so forth. They can be a part of a business, not just own the stock of that business, and it comes down to philosophy. Then do you you want the less volatility? of a cash flowing asset, which you can actually see the volatility indexes that actually prove this, or do you want the volatility of being in a stock or a mutual fund or a bond uh, going forward? So that's the difference between the cash flowing, the advantages of cash flowing assets. And I think the, the thing that is most exciting to me about having a cash flowing asset is that if your asset, say it's a rental property, say you've um, purchased a single family home and now you have also a duplex and now you've also purchased an apartment building and there's eight units in that apartment building and all of these, and you have a business and all of these are producing a flow of income, then that is increasing my income each month, which means my paycheck is bigger if you want to think about it in those terms. And that means that, Bruce, you talked about going from $200,000 of income to $250,000 of income earlier at the beginning of the show. But what if that $50,000 of income growth was not from you working harder or getting a promotion at your job? What if those $50,000 of 
cash flow per year was from assets. Well, now some people would call that passive income. We don't like that term because we know that no investment is truly passive. You're still going to have to have some knowledge. You're still going to have to watch what's going on with that asset. You may either be investing directly where you're handling the the property management, or maybe you're even outsourcing that, but whatever you're doing with asset-based or um, cash-flowing assets, you're going to have some type of oversight that's making it not completely passive. However, when that cash is coming from an asset, not from your sweat equity in a job, you now have two sources of income, meaning that your income is higher, which means it's easier to save more and put more dollars back into your purse, fatten that purse more, grow your emergency and opportunity fund larger, which means the whole cycle can continue faster because of that increased income, which means you're continuing building towards time and money freedom, which I'll say this is the the 10th Um, piece or thing that you really want in place is this vision towards ultimately financial freedom. I said earlier at the beginning of the show, we don't want to just have a target. It's not a dollar amount per se, but based on your current lifestyle, if you had cash flow from assets that was greater than your monthly expenses, now you're in a position where according to Robert Kiyosaki's definition, you're financially free. And what that means is that Now I have a decision about what I want to do with my time. I can continue working if I want to. I don't have to work in my job if I don't want to, but I'm in this position of creating financial freedom. That dollar amount is going to be different for every person based on what you make and what you spend each month. Your expenses may be $200,000 of expenses per year, or they might be $50,000 worth of expenses per year. And whatever you're spending per year, recouping that by asset-based income is going to look different from person to person. But if that's your end goal, you can begin working towards that and increasing your income every year and every month, starting now, going forward into the future, instead of just thinking about having income starting at some arbitrary age 65 or 70 date. So I know we've covered a lot here. To recap, what I would say is to start with, figure out what is your definition of wealth. How do you then optimize your financial life and do the most with the dollars that you have? Save as much of that as possible. Invest in what you know and control. Never stop saving and build this system in your financial life based on these fundamentals so that you can get closer to time and money freedom. Bruce, is there anything you'd like to throw in there before we wrap up the show? I think uh, all tools are helpful um, that we have available to us. WebMD is a great example of a tool that you can actually take care of your health a little bit. But the fact of the matter is, is, is that as a tool, there's also an art to, to taking care of somebody's health. And that's where you might get a traditional doctor of Western medicine or an alternative doctor to actually help you. The same thing happens in your financial life. You certainly could Google, you could use Investopedia, you can, but those are just single tools. There's also an art to actually getting time and money freedom um, to have a coach. And that coach just would happen to be a financial planner to actually help you along the way of your, of your goals of time and money freedom. And I think that just helps you to see 
what's in your blind spot. It, it helps you see the things that you don't know or you can't anticipate or the things that maybe you weren't thinking of and need that additional question to help you process making the best decisions. And we truly believe that you're the best person to be in control of your own financial resources. We want to have people be in control, which means not just having an outside person making decisions for you, but you having the knowledge to be able to make the ideal decisions with a coach guiding you to think about what are the next things coming ahead that you need to think about. Bruce, I think you could not have said that better. Most people don't actually make progress until they work with somebody that will hold them accountable to doing the things that they know are the right thing to do, but that just our human nature prevents us from making those ideal decisions if we don't have that accountability. So if you have resonated with anything that we've talked about today, or if you have questions, we would love to hear from you. You can post your questions and comments below this video, whether you're on LinkedIn, YouTube, whether you are on Facebook, you can subscribe to our channel. You can find us over at themoneyadvantage.com. You can book a call with our advisor team to get started on that art of looking at your own financial life and optimizing everything so that you can work towards time and money freedom and you can have the most and do the most with your money and feel the best about it today and in the future. So all of those are resources that we have for you. Thank you for being with us on this journey. Thank you for listening in today. And we would love to see you next time. In closing, remember, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.